Let's open up our copy of God's Word. Hopefully you brought it, and we're going to jump back into the book of uh, 1 John uh, this morning. And as you're finding your place there, uh, let me just say this. Uh, let's see. There they are. Uh, so uh, we have the great privilege and honor of welcoming back Nan and Mike Dean that are here today with us. And uh, I am so grateful that you guys are here um, and so I'm going to say what I didn't say because I couldn't be here on your last Sunday. So I'm going to take advantage of this uh, just for a moment. Um, so Pastor Dean was my pastor when I was here for three years on staff. And uh, he was always so gracious and kind to me uh, as a staff member. Uh, even after we left to go pastor in Ovilla, uh, Mike was somebody that I could call and rely on. We'd run into each other from time to time at conventions and different places. Uh, and he's left just incredible shoes to fill. And, and really, not so much him, but really Nan, I think, is the one with the biggest legacy around here. Uh, and I hear her name more than I hear yours, uh, Pastor Mike, but that's okay too. So, uh, but there, if you're a guest or a visitor, uh, Mike served here for 28 some odd years and now they're, they're retired, living, running around New Mexico and uh, getting snowed on, but they've only been home for like 10 days, I think, since they moved out there and uh, came back to see some grandkids. And so we're grateful uh, for, for them as well. And uh, so if you've got your copy of God's word, let me just say this before we get going, we're going to talk about conflict this morning uh, and wrestle with a text that addresses conflict. And uh, I know it's Christmas time. And so some of you guys are about to see family members that you haven't seen in a while that you may be in conflict with. And so I'm hopeful that this is a, a right timed message for you. Um, but before we get going on that, let me just say thank you to everybody who's been praying for uh, me and my family. We finally got moved to Fort Worth this week. Uh, and can I just say there is nothing worse than moving. It is terrible. Uh, it's awful, even with movers. It is just the worst thing uh, that you can possibly do. Maybe that and painting uh, would be on par for both of those. Um, and, and secondly, we got here and uh, Friday uh, was sort of my first day in the city. And so I was like, I need to get my hair fixed. I, my, my hair was dragging on my ears a little bit. And so I went to find a new uh, barber um, because the lady that I used in Cedar Hill, like she knew when Pastor Drew was coming, I was preaching the gospel at her, inviting her to church on a regular basis. And so I thought, okay, I'm gonna find my next victim and go to the same place. And so what started off as just like, hey, just trim my ears up just a little bit, uh, turned into like, I think Drew has some, ear, uh, some, some fantasies of being in the Marine Corps. And so uh, it just got shaved down a little bit too much. And we were like already committed. Uh, and it was so bad when I walked into the house, my kids were like, ooh, you know. <laughs> Um, and I, at that moment, I needed my wife to like tell me I was handsome or pretty or something. And she was like, God, what, what's going on? Like, what happened? You know? And, uh, but I'm thankful that, that at least my hair grows back. I know some of you, uh, you don't have that privilege. And so, um, but I, I, I got probably five or six comments when I walked in, like, got a haircut, didn't you, preacher? Uh, like they disapproved in, in some ways. So I want to set the record straight. I'm going to grow it back out. And uh, my hair grows back quick. So we'll, we'll get after it that way. So, so I appreciate the, the encouragement and the pastoral support. Uh, whatever you guys are, you're terrible at that so far with my hair at least. <laughs> So anyway, uh, so I thought this would be an appropriate message to talk about conflict with you because some of you need to know how to handle conflict, especially with your pastor and new haircuts, okay? And so uh, we pick up where we've left off several weeks ago. And so uh, I wanna just sort of jump right in and we're gonna look beginning in chapter two, uh, verse seven is where we left off. We finished with verse six two weeks ago uh, and I wanna pick back up and read verse seven and sort of jump in. And so uh, you can follow along on the screen with me, I believe. Here we go. And it says this, beloved, I am writing you no new commandments, 
but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. And the old commandment is the word that you have heard. Now, from the very beginning, we have trouble getting past just the first word in the first verse of the text that we're walking with. Now, this week was one of those peculiar weeks for me because not only was I moving, but I was about 10 or 15 hours in the midst of a sermon and in prepping this. And I realized about 15 hours in that I had gotten the entire text completely wrong and had to shift my understanding of it because of one little thing that happens here about two verses later. But as John begins to write and address the church, I want you to notice from the very beginning how he addresses the church by calling them the beloved. Now, what he's doing here in this moment is he is making a doctrinal statement about the the theological location that believers have because of Christ. So because of Christ and being grafted into the family of God, we hold this significant relationship with God himself. We have been brought into his family, eternally secure in our salvation. And so he's making a doctrinal statement by using this word. But it's not just doctrine that's divorced from where the people actually are, because this word, while it makes a statement theologically, he also uses it to show care and concern for the church. He uses it as a term of affection that he specifically has for the church that he writes to. And friend, when I think about this word in the context of the modern church today and in the era in which we live in, can I just say this from the very beginning? The church does not need any more critics of it. In fact, if you want to be countercultural from not just the community, but also within the church, the church doesn't need spiritual critics of it, but rather needs spiritual advocates for it. Now that doesn't mean that the church is imperfect or perfect in every way. The church makes mistakes and, and we make observations, but, but so often what happens is that we couch those observations with an overly critical spirit, divorced of the care and the concern that we should have for the church in general. And so to illustrate this, uh, years ago when I was a master's student at Southwestern and We were learning about what what the church was and how it was supposed to function. And so I got into this habit as a seminary student where I would come. I, I I wasn't at Travis yet at that point, but the church I served in, I got into this terrible habit that I would go and listen to a sermon or go participate in a program. And then I would get on seminary mode where I would get in the car with my wife and I would go, you know, they really should do things this way. Or if he would have preached this way or said this or illustrated it a little bit longer or explained it more thorough, or if this program was geared that way. And then one day my wife in a spirit of graciousness and kindness, she just said this, will you stop it? Like cut it out. And I was like, what are you you talking about? She said, you're in seminary mode. She said, I need you to lay that aside. And she said, I need you to just come back when the next time we come and just come with open hands and heart and just say, Lord, what is it that you have for me today? What is it that you want to change me with? And how do you want to shape me to look more like your son, Jesus? And to lay aside this this critical spirit that had begun to to root up in my heart that I I was unaware of. And it took the kindness and the graciousness of, of my bride to show me that. 
But he uses this term, he'll use it six other instances just in this letter alone. But I don't want you to just notice the beloved. I want you to also keen in on what he begins to do in the text where he begins to talk about the new commandment and the old commandment. And he uses this repetition of phrase to begin to draw attention to something that their hearers would have immediately gathered the understanding of it. First was the old commandment. And the old commandment sort of went like this. There's a place in Leviticus 19 where it says this, do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but rather love your neighbor as yourself. We're familiar with this. Well, then Jesus comes into the picture in John 13 and he, and he takes what was given in God's law in the Old Testament and he sort of elaborates it with, with a little bit more specificity and he begins to speak and he says this, Jesus said this, I give you a new command to love one another. Just as I have loved you, you must also love one another. But notice what he says at the end, by this all people will know that you are my disciples based upon how you love and care for one another, friend. So get this. The church's most powerful form of evangelism and care resides not so much in knocking on a door that we're not against that, but the most powerful form, the most compelling shape of evangelism that exists as non-believers look into our churches is whether or not we as the church are caring for one another and treating each other in such a way that it shows equal worth and dignity before God. In other words, what God wants from his people is that we would pursue a posture of health and and flourishing under the lordship of Christ as he is proclaimed in his scripture and that we would love and care for each other in such a way that when the world looks at our church, they go, listen, you guys take care of each other so well. You're so kind. You're so gracious. You're so benevolent. You're so giving. I want to be a part of something like that. Like that's something that that I want to sort of jump in on. They will know us by how we love one another. But look with me in verse nine, where he continues on and he says this, but whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Now I want you to see sort of the the juxtaposition that's taking place within verses nine and 10 of of the two people that he's profiling. In verse nine, we see that the person who says he's in the light and we notice this word says. So this is the talker. This is the one who is saying all the right things, who knows all the right answers, who dresses the right way, even behaves in the right way outwardly, but inwardly something is amiss because there is this hate that exists between his brother. And so he knows that he's not right. So this is the talker, but notice what he says in verse seven, but whoever loves his brother. So you've got one guy who who is outwardly saying one thing and then inwardly believes something else. And then you've got another one who's, who's not just talking, but he's doing the things that he says that are in line with what the scripture is actually teaching. Whoever loves his brother abides, is in union with Christ and fellowship with him, as we've talked about, in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. And so what does that mean? And why does John put those, those two positions right next to each other for the person that, that is saying one thing and doing something different and the person that is, that is actually doing the things that they believe? And what does this teach us about the gospel? Well, really quickly, what it says is this, is the gospel is about doing what you say and saying what you do. 
that there is consistency in our lives, that what we are speaking matches up with our deeds and the deeds that we do, we are speaking. In other words, the gospel comes in both words and deeds, my friends. It comes in the things that we do and that we show and that we demonstrate, but make no mistake about it. We can live and embody the gospel, but the gospel is meant to be spoken. It is meant to be proclaimed. That our good works in and of themselves, if they don't lead to an end where we are pointing people with our words and our actions that both mirror the gospel and what Jesus has called us to do, then if that's not the gospel we are portraying, then friend, we are portraying a different gospel than the one that is proclaimed in this book. But I told you earlier, I spent 15 hours working through this text and I was going one way and then all of a sudden I realized I missed it. Because when I got to the end of this verse, in verse nine, and he, and he says this, that he who says he's in the light, and he uses this word hate. And so, so you look up that word and you go, okay, well, to hate something means to abhor something. So um, I'm not a, I don't hate anybody. And I was kind of going like, well, well, what's the application to that? There's probably a lot of us here wouldn't say that we hate anybody, that we wish their demise or, or their, their ultimate pitfall. And, and so I, I'm, I think I'm good. Like I'm walking in the light. I don't wish anybody, you know, ill will. Like I'm, I'm rather good on all this. And so I was struggling a little bit with what the application was until I started digging in a little bit and looking at this word. And it actually has a second meaning. And the word that he uses in the Greek doesn't just mean hate as we've translated it in the ESV, but it actually means to think lesser than of someone. So think about this and think about what John is saying in the standard that he's calling us to live to. You are a person, I am a person who is walking in darkness. Not if I have outright hatred and I abhor someone, I wish their demise, but if I just think I'm better than them because I'm male, I'm better than the female. Because I'm white, I'm better than the black. Because you may be upper middle class and you think better than the lower class that I think more of myself than I ought to, or I disregard individuals based on what they do or their circumstances. It's not an outright putrid hatred towards someone. It's just simply an indifference towards their well-being. It's almost like it conveys this notion of just, just disregard, like they're, you're flippant towards certain people in your life. This is the meaning of the text. Whoever says he is in the light and just disregards a brother or sister, that's the person that's in the darkness. Like when I read that, I was like, God, are you crazy? Like what, a, what an incredibly difficult standard. Like, can it just be like the intended meaning of like, of hate? I can, I'm good with dealing with that. But no, God, God says that's not good enough. It's not just about wishing someone to, to demise, but it's about, I, I just, I don't even care. Or I think better of myself than I ought to in, in those kinds of circumstances. And I wrestled with this question of, well, what causes us to do that? And, and, and this passage is given in the context of John writing amongst a people that are in conflict, primarily with the Gnostics that we've talked about in previous weeks, but, but they're, they're at odds doctrinally with some people that hold different positions that, that are preaching another gospel than the one that's been revealed. And, and so it, it should cause us to ask this question, why, why does conflict exist in the church? 
Why does it exist in our homes and in our workplaces? What causes this, this hatred, this outright hatred and, and abhorring them or, or this outright just like, ah, I'm just indifferent and I'm gonna disregard? Well, the short answer to that is sin. But more specifically, what I would say this morning is sin as defined by just utter selfishness. And this could go one of two ways in our lives when we look at other people that we're perhaps in conflict with. One, we view people as a vehicle to get to where we want them to go. What I mean by that is, is that we're going to utilize them and use them in such a way that, that we're going to manipulate circumstances or, or abuse them in, in some way that, that I'm going to use them as a means to get to whatever my goal is. So I'm going to, I'm going to sort of use this coworker and, and use his work ethic, and then I'm going to take credit for it you know, on the back end, or, or I do this in the context of service. But the other way we do that is when we view people as obstacles. So we can view them as a vehicle to to help me get to where I need to be or they're an obstacle in the way and and I've got to sort of just run over them. But then that sort of uh, wrecks our, our understanding. And what we've said here over the past few weeks is this, that what the gospel says is this, is that people are, are actually not vehicles and they're not obstacles, but rather people are the mission for the people of God. Like people are the mission. They're the goal. They're the aim as we seek to glorify and, and, and bring honor to the Lord. People are the goal and, and they're the thing that, that we're striving for. So whether they're white or black, rich or poor, whether they're, they're uh, working white collar jobs or blue collar jobs or they have no jobs, we want to be a people and a church who is united around the idea that we don't want to dehumanize people and invalidate them by viewing them as, as a means to an end. We ought to love the man who picks up the trash and treat him with dignity and respect in the same way that we view the person who manages the finances or or makes the the, the larger decisions. Whether it be in our organization or whether it be in our homes, whether it be uh, in our schools and and wherever we we find ourselves in the midst of those things. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. And so we live in this world of conflict. Friend, I want to tell you this this morning that within any healthy relationship, listen to me carefully, within any healthy relationship, there will be conflict Conflict is not always indicative of an unhealthy relationship. In fact, if you're in a relationship with anyone, how you handle and manage the conflict will often determine how healthy you'll end up being with your spouse, with your kids, with your boss, and with your coworker. Conflict is a natural thing. And the sooner we just come to the place where we go, yeah, this is how it is. And we learn to, to deal with that in such a way that, that we honor the Lord and we honor the scriptures that God has given and seek to handle conflict in a way that ultimately brings glory to the Lord. And so here's, here's what I want to say about conflict this morning. Conflict is a heart struggle rooted in idolatry is ultimately where it comes from. Conflict, though, it is, is a healthy part and it's a normal part of even healthy relationships. When the conflict arises... It's often indicative of of what's going on in the heart of the person, whether you were the one wronged or or they were the one that wronged 
you. And here's the thing that we have to remember about conflict in the context of hatred and thinking less than or, or, or outright just despising this person and wishing uh, ill will to, to happen in their life. Conflict, it reveals something in us. It reveals something about us. Primarily, it reveals the relationship that we have between us and God. And that when someone has conflict with us, with you, and you're at odds with your coworker or your spouse and your button heads, that oftentimes those things, like you have nothing to do with it. Now you may be responsible and there may be some actions that you need to get right. But oftentimes conflict is just something that points us to the fact that we desperately need God to be in our lives and to control us and to consume us. And that it reveals our need and our utter desperation for the spirit of God to invade our midst and to move us and to shape us. Friend, conflict is is sin. Conflict is selfishness. And it shows that we often are are leaning too much in our own ways and in our own thoughts and in our own mindset. So I ask you the question this morning, if you're in conflict with someone today, who are you at odds with today? could be someone at work. I talked to three people after the service this morning who just said, just pray for me. My family's coming together over Christmas. And either they had siblings that were at odds with each other in conflict or they had spouses that were in conflict with one another or they were engaged in conflict directly with, with people. And they just said, pray for me. I, 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 Christmas is hard and, and seeing those people is, is difficult. Who who are you in conflict with today? And what do you do about it? And where do we go in the midst of living and residing in a world that that is often so unforgiving and so unkind? Remember Jesus said earlier that we read that the, the world is going to know us by how we love and care for each other. You know, conflict does exist in churches. Not this church, of course. Doesn't exist in this pastor. Only in Larry Thompson, primarily. <laughs> Maybe Kirk Leach a little bit. Not me. We often think it's everybody else but us but it's usually always us, is it not? Conflict shows us our need for a savior to invade and to control us. And sometimes the quickest way out of conflict is to practice a posture of forgiveness. And I know that that's easier said than done. And it got me thinking this week as I looked at this text, well, why, why is forgiveness so hard? And it, a lot of it's just based on like, I, I don't want to be wrong. I want to be right. And so I don't want to admit my wrong. And there's always two people in the, in the midst of an argument or in a, in a disagreement. But what I want to say to you this morning in the context of, of our, 
unforgiveness evolving into a posture of hate, either indifference or wishing someone ill will. Listen to this, friend. Not forgiving has a price, a price that demands far more than what forgiveness initially asked for. Not forgiving, a failure to forgive and taking up an offense and running with it. Listen, it changes you when you refuse to forgive it. And I know that I may be oversimplifying forgiveness and, and I want you to remember that we're talking this morning about relational conflict. I know that there is conflict that, that runs very deep, that, that is very serious and, and I'm oversimplifying some things this morning. But when we, we choose not to forgive and to hold on, we, I do believe we evolve into a posture of, of we become the person walking in darkness, failing to forgive, being unwilling to do those things. But look with me at verse 10 where he says, but whoever loves his brother abides in the light and there's no cause for, for stumbling. I want you to notice that word stumbling at the end. And that word stumbling comes out of a Greek word, just scandalidon, and it's where we get the word scandalize. And to be caught up in a scandal, it means this, that I have demonstrated and, and done a behavior that is going to inflict harm on me or someone else. So when, when someone says you have a scandalous reputation, it means that you're acting in such a way that you are potentially or that you are bringing harm upon you or perhaps the people that are around you. You are scandalous. And here's the crazy thing about this. He says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for a scandal. There is no cause for harm. Well, well when does the cause for harm come? When we're, we're children of darkness. When we hate our brother and we hate our sister. Like this blows my mind thinking about, like this is not an egregious sin like that we pick on, right? Like he's not talking about murder. He's not talking about adultery. He's not talking about stealing. He's not talking about all the, like the easy sins that are there to sort of pick on. He's just simply saying, if, if Joe Ward refuses to, to pay attention or, or he misses or he thinks lesser than to, to certain people, then he becomes the person that he's personifying as the person of darkness, like he's that guy. And it's, it's this really simple thing. But, but yet the text, it speaks very forcefully about those things. And we begin to scandalize our, our reputations based upon the affections that we show or don't show other people. That blows my mind. Like it's not that you said an unkind word or were mean or like it was just like, it was like indifference towards that person. So how do we make sure that, that we're not the person that is, is causing harm or, or creating the scandal by, by being unaware? Well, listen, uh, the, the very first thing is that the best way to, to be cared for here at this church, the number one way, if you want to be cared for and you want to care for others, is to be involved in a small group. Like, be committed to, to that group of people. And like know them and, and seek to be known in the process, like, like to invest in each other's lives and to know and to show care because, because otherwise, one of our core values that, that we, we want to have and we want to talk about on a regular basis is, is sort of where we're headed as a church when it comes to our small group ministry. 
Like discipleship does not happen in isolation and alone. Change happens in the context of groups. And it's God's best for us and his design. And so if we want to walk as, as brothers and sisters that are, that are not stumbling and, and just being indifferent, even if we don't struggle with outright hatred towards other people, we need to be involved in the context of those groups. But maybe you're, you're headed towards conflict outside of church. And, and so where do I, what do I do with this? And sort of where do I, where do I go from here? And I, I just want to remind us of a couple things that, that we're probably all familiar with, but maybe not. The first thing is this. In Matthew 7, 5, anytime we go to approach conflict, we should be cognizant of this text where he says, first, Jesus says this, take the log out of your own eye. And then you will be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Like that's the first step is go, Lord. So it it literally looks like this. I'm going to draw a circle around my two feet. And Lord, I pray everybody within this circle, I pray that you would show and reveal sin and show me my sin where I'm at fault in this relationship. Help me identify that. Help me see it if, if I don't see it. Before I go. The second thing is this. Proverbs 19, 11 says this. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. We live in a culture that is offended by everything. Do we not? Friends, we we preach a gospel that is offensive. By very nature of identifying with Christ, we carry an offensive message into the world that they they cannot, like here's how how offensive the gospel is in in John 14. You cannot, absolutely not, 100%, there is absolutely zero chance, there is no way that you are going to be with the Father unless you come through the Son. You do not get to heaven apart from Jesus. That is as exclusive as it can possibly get. There's one way, there's one road. The cross is highly offensive. It's foolishness to those that are perishing, according to the book of 1 Corinthians. It is an extremely offensive message. But even though we carry a a life-giving, gospel-hope-filled message that that saves people through the Spirit, we we acknowledge the fact that that we live in a culture that is easily offended. And one of the ways we can be counter-cultural in the midst of the world we live in is to not take up offenses so easily. Like overlook it. And I'm not talking about egregious sins or, or immoral behavior or, or unlawful behavior. I'm not talking about that. But, but in a sense of like somebody says something and you're like, well, I'm offended by that. Like what good does that do? Okay. I mean, Larry Thompson gets offended all the time. And I'm like, I don't know how to deal with your feelings, man. I don't know. I don't know what to do with you. Stop being offended. I usually send Dane Petty after him. Go talk to him. Counsel him. Tell them to quit being offended. But it is to our our glory, to our benefit, rather, to say, to overlook an offense, to be kind to one another, to be gracious. Like, it's okay. But how do you decide on whether or not you ought to take action for that? Well, I want to give you just a couple of things in in closing, just real briefly. One, uh, questions to consider. The first one is this. Is the offense dishonoring to God? If it's not dishonoring to God, let it go. If it is dishonoring to God, then, then let's talk about a way to approach the person. Spouses, if you're, if you're having issues with, with husband or, or wife, like, like this is a good sort of paradigm to sort of wrestle with. Is the offense dishonoring to God? If it's not, just, just move on and move past it. If it is, then let's have an, a different conversation. Second thing is this, has it damaged the relationship? 
Have, have those actions caused harm into my relationship? And if it has, then let's have another conversation. If not, let's just let it go and, and, and let's move on. Let's move forward. Like somebody told me this morning, I'll, I'll share this with you. I asked her if I could share this. She said, uh, you'll, you, I actually like you better because you've shaved your beard off, Pastor. And uh, I was like, well, that's okay. Like, you know, and maybe you need to shave yours off. I don't know. And uh, uh, I was like, we were offended by that a little bit. They weren't offended. They were sort of in jest with that. But it was like, hey, just is there damage to the relationship because of that? Well, no, I, I don't think so. I, I, no. Then we move past it. Third thing is this. Is it hurting other people? If the actions of the individual have, have hurt someone physically, even emotionally, spiritually, then, then yes, let's have that next conversation. If it's not, let it go. Last thing is this, is it hurting the offender, him or herself? I had this rule when I was in student ministry that um, I would tell kids, like, I, I, I can't promise you that I will keep everything a secret. And they were like, why would I ever tell you anything? Because if you are doing something that is illegal or going to put yourself in harm's way, then, then lawfully I'm required, I, I can't keep it a secret. And so I, I can't not, not say anything. I've got to work through a process to make sure that you're safe because the number one concern that I have is that you are going to be okay and going to be protected. And, and so here's, with, with all that saying, has it damaged the relationship? Is it hurting other people? Is it hurting the offender? Listen to this. This is the best advice that I figured out the hard way in walking through this. And I think that there's some Proverbs that speak to this. Listen to this. In conflict, seek to understand rather than to be understood. When I first started out in ministry over 15 years ago, when I would get in conflict with someone, you know what my goal was? I, I think pretty logically, I'll argue with a brick wall. I have no problem. And so I would get in these contexts of these conflicts and I would go, it's about to go down. Let's do this. I know what I believe and why. And, and my goal in some of those meetings initially was to prove you wrong and so that you would be convinced that I was right. It is absolutely one of the worst possible things that you can do in the midst of conflict with people. Go and, and seek a process to understand where they're coming from rather than to be understood. And then what happens in good biblical counseling is this, is when the pastor or the counselor comes together and both people have that aim when they come to the table. I want to understand you and I want to understand where you're coming from rather than you understanding me. When both mutually do that, then what happens is there are breakthroughs biblically in the relationship and the relationship is able to resolve the conflict. Seek to understand rather than to be understood. Ask questions. I want to close with this and I'm going to invite our, our worship team back up on the stage. And I want to say this to you because I, for me, as I wrestled with this week, I kept going, where's the hope in this? And what do I do with this as I sort of walk through and, and seek to be a child who's walking in the light? Really simple is this. Through the gospel, God gives us everything we need to thrive in a very unforgiving world. Because of the gospel, the hope in the text is that God allows us to move away from darkness and harboring these feelings of, of hate or indifference towards folks and to move us into a posture where there is care and there is concern and there is pursuit for the one that doesn't know him or is gone far away from him. The gospel gives us everything we need to flourish in an unforgiving world. You want to be countercultural today? Be a forgiving person. 
Are you guys watching the news? Like, are y'all just like me? You've just kind of tuned it out, like I'm tired of hearing about it all. Like we live in a world that is all about vengeance and their way and their cause. And now on both sides, it's the same thing in a lot of ways. And it becomes white noise after a while. And at some point you just go, it, is it not as simple as just the one who, who loves and abides in Christ? Like one day, Lord, let it be so. Let it, let it happen, let it come. And I wanna say this to you, God, God has left you. Or rather, he has sent you into an unforgiving world. He is well aware of how unforgiving our world is. And God has strategically sent you into that world to display forgiveness to unforgiving people. To love people in the way that God tells us to love them. And more particular, to to love one another in the ways that that are supernatural and that are good. Friend, this morning, our invitation is really simple. I'm gonna invite some of the elders and the staff to come down front. And and here's the deal. We, as elders, we want to be able to pray for you. We want uh, you to feel like you can be prayed for by us and the leadership in this church. And so here's, here's what I'm gonna ask for the invitation time. If, if you're like, I need prayer, I've got some unforgiveness in my life, I'm in conflict with some people and I just need somebody to pray over me, then we want to come pray for you. Maybe you're the one at conflict. Maybe on a second level, you're in the midst of conflict. You're not the cause of it, you're not the reason, but you've just found yourself in the context of family. Like here you are and you've got these folks or you're, you're a coworker, you're the peacemaker and I just need prayer. Just pray over me to be peacemakers. Maybe the most compelling message that we can live out over the Christmas holidays is, yeah, we can say our Savior has come, God with us, but we we become peacemakers. And we settle and we help people see the light of the gospel. But if you're also here today and you don't know Christ and you've not been reconciled with him, we want you to be reconciled with him today by giving your life to Christ, confessing your sins, receiving Christ as Lord. We want you to know him like we do. And through the gospel to watch God change you to become the people that God intends you to be. Would you stand with me as I pray for us and then God's people will respond. Elders and staff will come down front to receive you. Lord, we thank you for the good news in your gospel, the hope that you give us. We pray, God, that we would be a people that are not indifferent towards those that are hurting or in need. I pray that you would allow our church to be a church of peace and that we would be peacemakers in the midst of an unforgiving world. Help us, God. We pray in Christ's name. God's people said, You respond as the Lord leads. Let us sing as saved and redeemed people.